had a roommate in college who shall remain nameless lest he be joining us via the live stream right now. You never know, right? And he had a reputation. It was, it was quite a notorious reputation. He would go to the rehearsal dinner of all of our friends, guy friends that were getting married. And when it came time to give toast or stand up and say something, he would invariably stand up and say something incredibly inappropriate and embarrassing about the groom. Now, when this happened, the reactions were invariably the same, right? There was always laughter. In fact, you could say, in a sense, everyone in that room was laughing, but not the same kind of laughing. There was always a person or two who erupted in uproarious laughter, which was almost as inappropriate as the commentary itself, right? Then, then we had a couple others that would laugh, kind of the mocking laugh at the groom and like kind of, kind of revel in his, in his embarrassment. But most of us, we had a different kind of laughter. It was the nervous laughter, the embarrassed laughter, the kind of laughter where you want to melt under the table. You ever had that kind? Like you didn't want to be associated with that guy or with that person or what have you. And it illustrates for us, is it not true, that not all laughter is created equal. Not all laughter means the same thing. And that's going to be an important truth for us to grab hold of this morning as we look at a passage where, believe it or not, laughter occupies the central theme. So let's jump into the text. We just have seven verses this morning. In verse 2, we hear the news that we've all been waiting for. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12, and God appeared to Abraham. He's going to make a covenant to give him a child and bless he and Sarah and a nation and the promised Messiah. It's the moment we've all been waiting for, and here, and here it goes. It tells us 90-year-old Sarah conceives and gives birth to a son named Isaac. Now, there are so few details in this account, it can almost seem anticlimactic, can it? Because we all want to know the National Enquirer kinds of questions. Like, what's it like being 90 and pregnant? nursing in a child, child-rearing, the terrible two, the fearsome threes. Sarah, what, I, in fact, I, that's going to be at the top of my list, okay, when we get to heaven, is to find out what this was like. But it's interestingly, Moses doesn't give us any of those details. All he tells us, look back in verse 2, is that God, quote-unquote, visited Sarah. That's it. He visited Sarah. Now, that's an interesting word, though, and let's go back to the last verse of chapter 20, and remember, we've said this before, that these chapter divisions, verse divisions, were not in part of the inspired text when Moses write. This was all meant to be read as a big, long bedtime story or a church story. I mean, it was a huge narrative, and so there are these artificial divisions that we have that we've utilized over the centuries for easy reference, but go back to the end of verse I mean, to the end of chapter 20 and verse 18, and listen, listen to what Moses tells us. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife, hard stop, and then immediately the Lord visited Sarah. It's almost as, as, as if to say, here's what was happening by God's sovereign hand in the camp of Abimelech. But here's what was happening by the sovereign hand of God in the life of Abraham and Sarah. In fact, that word visit kind of denotes this idea of gracious intervention. 
that Moses is signaling something really important to us. He's signaling to us that the, the most important thing for us to know in this text this morning is that, going back to verse two, 1 and 2, that God did to Sarah as he had promised. That, that Sarah bore Abraham him a son which God had spoken to him. You see, Moses is being super intentional to put the focus clearly on God and the Word of God and that God is faithful and that God is sovereign and that God always, unequivocally, in every situation, is faithful to His Word. He's faithful to Himself. He never fails to fulfill His Word. His Word as good as gold. And the way that Moses wants us to understand this statement anew, because let's be honest, most of you in here would be, I've heard that before, been there, done that, Pastor Paul, I, I get that. We're a church that loves the Word, I, 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 we're, we're a church that proclaims the Word, we believe in the Word, but I don't want this to be a reality, a theological treatise, confessional statement merely. As Paul Tripp would say, we want to live in this reality on the street level, where we need to be reminded afresh this morning, don't we, that God is for us, that if you are in Christ Jesus, he is for you, and he is accomplishing his purpose, even though it may be a dark, dark, dark season for you in your soul and your life. You need to be reminded, I need to be reminded that this isn't all there is. That God is supernaturally, sovereignly working for your good, for my good. And interestingly, the way Moses wants to do this is that he wants to play on this theme, of all things, laughter. Look at verse 6. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now this word for laughter, to laugh, yasak. Not a Hebrew scholar, but that's close enough. I'm sure one of you will text me after the service because you're looking at your commentary right now versus listening to the sermon. But yasak. And in this context, what kind of laughter is this? Obviously, it's the laughter of joy. It's the laughter of merriment. It's the, the laughter of celebration, of amazement. Can you think, think about this for a second? They have waited 25 years for this child. And as finally they're experiencing this amazing reality, you know that it's part joy, but it's, but it's obviously part relief. Finally, we're seeing the fulfillment of God's word and his promises. You know, our first child um, born back in 1999, we had had several miscarriages, traumatic pregnancy experiences um, leading up to that first birth for Susan and myself. But when we were in that delivery room and finally our first child was born, what's the first thing that we did? We held her, but then we simultaneously, what? Laughed and cried all at the same time. See, there was this overflow of joy and thankfulness, and so we named her Grace because she literally was God's grace to us. Now, what's interesting about that word for laughter, yasak, 
is that when it comes to the name Isaac, the literal name for Isaac is Yasak, just Yasak capitalized. It's obviously a play on words. It's, it's what his name means, laughter. And, it, and, of course, God gave them this name so that every time they would say his name, they would be reminded of his grace. They would be reminded of the fact that he sovereignly visited them, that he had not turned his back on them, that he was accomplishing his purposes in them. And it was, in this context, a moment of incredible joy, of incredible celebration. Now, if we stopped there right now, and some of you might say, that would be a switch. Go for that, Paul. See how that would work. But if we stopped there, it would be fitting. That will preach. That will absolutely preach. But at the end of the story, what we're going to see, you know, you know, God is this never doing one thing, is he? He's always doing about a million things simultaneously. We think God's doing this, and he's certainly doing that, and we don't understand why he's doing this, but it's because he's doing this, 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 and this, some things that we, we never even know in this life. But come to fruition decades, generations, hundreds of years later, we're going to see that to be the case in this passage. But see, God is never doing just one thing because this is not the first time we have seen this idea of laughter pop up in the text, is it? If you've been studying Genesis with us here on Sunday mornings here at Four Oaks, you know that we've seen a number of these instances. And I believe it's been Moses' way of preparing us to come to this passage right here. So we're going to look at three episodes of laughter this morning. And we're going to tie them into how God is using this, what he's trying to tell us about his sovereign word, his sovereign grace, his sovereign plan, his blessing in our life. And here here are the three episodes. First, we're going to look at the resigned laughter of Abraham. We're going to look at the skeptical laughter of Sarah. And finally, the sovereign laugh of God himself. So let's look first at Abraham, and this is going to take us back to a passage, Genesis 17, we looked at a few number of weeks ago. And remember, this is when God visits Abraham in the middle of all this waiting and wants to remind him again, God hasn't forgotten him, God's going to be faithful. And here's what God says to Abraham, he says, I will bless her, and that's meaning Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and what? Laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, and I can just imagine him slapping his knee, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, what kind of laughter is this? I call it the John McEnroe kind of laughter, right? What did he say that year at Wimbledon? You must be joking. All right, he said that in a little different way. But you must be joking, God. You've got to be, you've got to be kidding. Come on, God, you're pulling my leg. I mean, Ishmael, I can totally see, but, but Sarah, you have, I mean, he would not never say this to God, but he whispers to himself, God, you, you've kind of lost your mind here a little bit, right? This is not a laughter of joy and merriment. This is incredulous laughter. And incredulous laughter is rooted in this idea that Abraham, I think, has sort of resigned himself that this is just the way things are going to be. 
See, a long, long time ago, Abraham, I mean, come on, let's be honest, stopped hoping. He dared to stop dreaming. He just kind of came to terms with himself and said, you know, Ishmael as my heir, it's, it's not the top choice. Not the top choice. But it's better than nothing. So God, that's fine. Don't, don't tease me with these little dabbles of hope. Let me ask you a question here just for a second. Where in your life are you resigned? We put it another way, more pointed way. What's the Ishmael in your life? What is that place where there's that point of pain? Or that's disappointment? Or that wound? And you've just resigned yourself. It's just going to always be this way. It's not that you don't think God could work in that area. You do. I mean, you're, you're a good Calvinist, and you're Reformed, and all those sorts of things. And I know God works all things together for good. You know that here, confessionally, in your statement of faith, your, your academic theology. So it's not a matter of that you don't think God could. You're just wondering, you've just given up hope thinking that he would in your life. What is that for you? Is it some kind of chronic sin? Is it a broken relationship? Is it a marriage that, to be honest, is just kind of meh? Is it some ongoing, chronic, besetting sin? Some piece of brokenness in your life that you look at and say, that's not the way things are supposed to be, but I'm just sort of resigned to it. If, If that's the place that you are, that's where Abraham is. And listen to what God tells Abraham. He, and, he, and, he, and as I read this, as it's read over Abraham, I want it to fall on you. I want it to fall on me. Look in Genesis 17, 19. It says this, God said, now this is great. So Abraham did his big speech, right? God just cuts right through it. What does he say? God said, no. No, Abraham. You don't have this figured out. No, Abraham, you're not walking by faith. No, Abraham, listen, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Believing this and grabbing hold of this, that God is always true to his word, the Bible calls that what? Faith. This was not the laugh of faith on Abraham's part. It was the laugh of resignation. Now, understand something, and we have to say this, living in a materialistic, pluralistic, 21st century Western culture, faith does not mean that God will heal every disease. And oftentimes, many times, most of the time, he does not. It does not mean that God will fix every relationship. That's that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that when we resign ourselves, when we sort of throw in the towel spiritually, we're cutting ourselves off from the very thing that God wants to use to sanctify and work in our hearts. I want you to think about this. When are those times when we feel most compelled to pray? I mean, we feel most compelled to pray, do you not? When, when, when there is a crisis when there is an urgent matter at hand, when we God's help and we need God's help right now, 
But when we are full and, and fat and high on the hog, it's like it's so easy just to blow past those times. But it's also easy to blow past them when we are with Abraham is. And that's just, we've just sort of shut ourselves off from God. I was watching one of the, the Star Wars movies. I won't get into that debate this morning because I know some of you have very strong opinions about those. But, but there, there, there's one scene where, where the character tells Luke Skywalker, you've shut yourself off from the force. And I was like, hmm, that's, that's a good definition of the kind of resignation we see here on the part of Abraham. You see, when we, when we shut ourselves off from the Spirit... When we shut ourselves off from faith, when we shut ourselves off from daring to go there and hope again, and let's be honest, sometimes we're fearful, we're scared, we don't want to be hurt again, we miss the very thing God wants to use to do that sanctifying surgery in our hearts. See, for God, the most important thing this morning, please hear this, is not the end result. Whatever that thing is in your life that you're praying, hoping, you've given up on, the most important thing for God is not the end result. It's always the process. It's always the process. You know, Jesus is not genie in the bottle that we rub whenever we need him. That's that's not a God. That's That's a servant. That's a genie. We worship God Almighty, the king of the universe, and he says, I want you to not give up. I want you to seek me. I want you to persist in prayer. I want you to place your hope in me. Where in your life do you need to re-engage the Lord? That's the resigned laughter of Abraham. Let's look secondly at the skeptical laughter of Sarah. Now we're back to Genesis 18. And remember, as as context, this is when God has visited Abraham with his angels and He has dined with Abraham. Remember, it's the only time in the Old Testament God ever has a face-to-face, sit-down, encounter meal with a person. He does it as a theophany in the form of of a man. And he sits down and he tells Abraham one more time how it's going to be. Now, listen to verse 9 in Genesis 18. They said to him, this is the angels, this is the Lord. Genesis 18. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. So the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So think about this cloak and dagger, Mission Impossible. The guys are on this side of the thing, you know, playing cards, talking, whatever, having their conversation. Sarah's eavesdropping on the other side of the tent. And it says, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So listen, so Sarah what? Laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now granted, I'm reading that laughter in a particular way. And I'll explain in a minute why I think it's to be read this way. But I think this is a different kind of laughter than Abraham's laughter. This is not the laughter of resignation. I think this is the laughter of skepticism. This is the laughter 
of cynicism. This is the laughter of bitterness. And you say, Pastor Paul, why do you say that? Well, first, let's remember this. Sarah has had an ongoing season, and by season I mean years, of bitterness. It started when she grew impatient, embittered over having to wait on God. And she said, listen, Abraham, I'm tired of waiting on God. Let's get your servant girl over here, Hagar. You go into her bedroom, and then we will conceive, and I'll take her child and raise it for our own. And that's how the line will be perpetuated. Remember that? She concocted a scheme. And as we saw, it did not end up like she thought it was going to end up. Because what happened is that, that, that as, as Sarah's place was devalued, Hagar's place was empowered. And Hagar began to lord it over her. She began to get standing in the family. And she began to treat with mockery Sarah. And you can imagine Sarah, she's vested everything she has in this particular scheme thinking it's going to rescue her from the pain of waiting, and it totally backfires. And when that happens, there is bitterness. There's hardened of heart. There is cynicism. Can you, can you relate, by the way? The thing that you've kind of resigned yourself to, you've sort of taken matters into your own hands, And maybe the scheme you have concocted has made things all the worse. And when that happens, the heart grows harder and harder and more bitter and more bitter. And remember, she tries to send, think think about this, a young mom and her baby away to die in a wilderness. She was that bitter. The second reason I say that I think she's bitter, listen to how God confronts Sarah in this passage. Let's go back to that text. He says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, Listen, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, Oh, but you did laugh. We'll come to that in a second. Tim Keller makes this note, and I think it's right on. That Hebrew phrase is anything too hard or too difficult for the Lord. It literally means in the Hebrew, is there anything too wonderful for God to do? See, when you become bitter, when you become skeptical, when you become a cynic, you stop dreaming, don't you? You stop hoping. You stop imagining. Now, why is that the case? Why are some of us in that place this morning? It's because we want to protect ourselves, don't we? We don't want to open ourselves up one more time. Pastor Paul, it's just too hard. It's too painful. It's easier for me to be angry than it is to be hopeful. In fact, the anger fuels me. Can you identify with that this morning? having a great fear of having your heart dashed again. See, Sarah's heart is broken. She's been waiting a long time, but her resignation has turned to bitterness. Listen, Sarah, and and before we too hard on Sarah, she's been waiting how long? Almost 25 years to this point. She's been hearing about these dreams for so long. She just can't go there. Where in your life 
are you not just resigned, but you're actually bitter. You're actually angry. You've actually so shut down that if someone were just to brush up against that hurt, they would, it would elicit all sorts of pain and anger and anguish. So it's just easier, Pastor Paul, just to not go there. Tim Keller again said, the problem for some of us, now listen, is not that the gospel promises too little. For some of us, it's that the gospel promises too much. Come on, Pastor Paul. Fool me once, right? But not me. Maybe for other people, but not for me. Now, I want you to see here the move that God makes, because this is not an, it's not enough for God just to leave Sarah in her bitterness. He says something here that's going to prepare us for this final scene in our text today. Listen to what he says, and I, and I just, you can see the playful banter here. He's drawing her out. He's penetrating her heart. You laugh, Sarah. Oh, no, I didn't. But Sarah, oh, yes, you did, right? Why, why does God say that right here? He wants it on record. He wants Sarah to go back to that place mentally and in her heart and to remember that day. Because God is preparing for her and Abraham a whole nother kind of laughter. So let's back, back at our text in 20, chapter 21, the sovereign laugh of God. Now one of the reasons that we want to say that this laughter very clearly is far different than the faithless laughter that we find is that this laughter has its origin in the very heart of God. Look at verse 6. Sarah says, God has made laughter. It's a causal link. God is the author of this laughter. God, this, this laughter finds its divine origin in the very purposes and plans of God. It's almost as if, and I think this is, this is amazing, God's taking all the faithless laughter of Abraham, resigned, God could, but I don't think he will. He's taking all the cynical, bitter laughter of the scornful laughter of Sarah, of anger and bitterness and betrayal. And God says, I'm going to wrap all of that up And I'm going to transform your laughter into a sovereign laughter that will far exceed anything you could ever dare dream or imagine. You see, when when I give you this name, Isaac, and that was God's idea, by the way, not only are you going to be reminded of my grace, but you're going to be reminded of your greatest failure, of your greatest lack of faith. And that's precisely the place, oh, this is so good. That's precisely the place, church, where God wants to go to surgical work on your heart. That place of faithlessness for you that manifests itself in these faithless ways, God says, I want to give you the laughter of sovereign joy. See, the sovereignty of God, do you not see it? and we're going to see this in all throughout Genesis, is interwoven into every part of the story of God's people. 
And if you're in Christ this morning, even if you cannot detect it, even if you can't see the thread, the sovereignty of God, his precious sovereignty, is woven into your story. We're going to see this constantly throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. When we get to Genesis 50 in the next decade or two or three, right? It won't be a year, whatever. Joseph has the most astounding thing to say. You talk about a guy who could be resigned. His brothers threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. He was carted off to Egypt to be lost forever and ever, sold to Potiphar, falsely accused, thrown into prison. Sorry, not that sermon this morning. Spoiler alert, right? Just wait, wait till we get there. It's, 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 I mean, it's the broken dream upon broken dreams. And it all culminates at the very end of Genesis 50 where he has his brothers all gathered up and they're like, oh no, this is when Joseph is going to lower the boom on us. This is when our, you know, this is when our chickens come home to roost. What does Joseph say to them? He says, guys, I get it. What you did to me, you intended, purposed for evil. Now, what's interesting is what he says next. He does not say what you purpose for evil, God used for good. He does not say that. He says what you purpose for evil, God purposed for good. Somehow, in the mysterious, sovereign, providential will of God, he's orchestrating everything, even the sins of his own brothers. To send him to Egypt, it was really God sending him. It was really God going before them to save them to give the line of promise continuation on into the future. And so we want to be really clear here. When we say that God turns our faithlessness into sovereign, the sovereign laugh of joy, it doesn't mean all of our earthly problems are fixed. And sometimes our earthly problems only increase. Because as we're going to see, there's dark days ahead. There's a, there's a major test of faith coming in a couple of chapters. There's many disappointments. But what we can have confidence in is that it's all going somewhere. That God is not surprised. God is not taken aback. God does not have one pulled over his eyes. God is, in fact, orchestrating and working all things together for the good. For service... Susan texted me and reminded me of a quote, and I think this is, this is, this is right on. This is, this is nerd illustration time this morning. So this is from, from Tolkien. And Frodo says, Gandalf, I, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. Now listen. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. Church, can you hear that laugh this morning? Do you know that laugh? You may say, Pastor Paul, how how can I? What does that mean? It's to be reminded that the story of the miraculous birth of Isaac is just a prelude. It's just preparing us for an event 2,000 years later that we just celebrated where there is another miraculous birth where an angel appears to Mary and you know Mary just had to chuckle to herself all throughout this. But yet this laughter, Jesus grew up. Now listen, 
in order for us to have the sovereign joy of laughter in our lives through God's grand redemptive purposes, guess what had to happen? Jesus had to grow up and to be denied the laughter and pleasure of his father as he hung on a Roman cross for our sins. God had to turn his face away. God had to forsake his own son. Whatever your point of bitterness or resignation is in your life, I promise you, I promise you, is just a shadow of what the Almighty, in whatever sense the Almighty experiences these things, as he turned his face away. As Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the wrath of God, as the sin of the world was poured out on him. There was no laughter on that day. Also that you and I, when we place our faith in that resurrected Savior, that we can have the laugh of faith, the laugh of sovereign joy, the laugh of God's grand redemptive purposes where he will never leave us or forsake us. He will always be faithful to us. He will always do according to his word. He is always working everything for good because joy comes in the morning. Let's pray, church, that God would give us the faith of laughter.